We come in this lesson number 40 in our Life of Christ study to the fifth example of how the righteousness of Christ supersedes and surpasses that of the religious rulers of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. This example deals with how a person who has received through faith the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, a born-again believer, in other words, how he or she should properly respond when personally wronged. And the Lord's words on this subject are very important in this day and age when we are continually being bombarded with just the opposite teachings and examples where we find that retaliation and lawsuits are not only considered normal, but even mandatory and indispensable. Let me read for a minute something that Dr. John MacArthur says in his commentary on the book of Matthew. In this section, he says, In our day, the number of rights claimed has greatly expanded. Movements have developed for civil rights, women's rights, children's rights, workers' rights, prisoners' rights, and so on. Never has a society been more concerned about rights. And of course, to that list, we could add many other new rights that have since been added, such as homosexual rights. All right, as he goes on and he says, we idolize the hero who stands up for what is his, no matter who it may offend. That self-interested, self-protecting spirit characterizes fallen human nature. Above all else, sinful man wants what he thinks is his own. And in the process of protecting what is his own, he is also inclined to wreck considerable trouble on anyone who takes what is his. Retaliation, usually with interest, is a natural extension of selfishness. End of quote. Furthermore, aside from the teaching of the world on the matter of vengeance or retaliation, we all know that even in those of us who are Christians, we are constantly at battle with the old man, the self, our self, our carnal nature, and with our problems of dealing or desiring some kind of a, of a payback to those who hurt us and with always demanding our quote-unquote rights to what we see as personal injustices. We, too, have a battle with wanting to get even. Resisting personal retaliation is the title for this lesson on Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Now, to study it, we're going to do what we have been doing with the other subjects in this section of the sermon, which is entitled Reinterpretations of the Law, and those sections have been on murder, adultery, divorce, oath-taking, and now we're going to be talking about retaliation. And we're going to first of all look at what the actual Old Testament Mosaic legislation had to say regarding the subject of personal vengeance and retaliation, and then we're going to talk about the perverted practice of the scribes and the Pharisees at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will conclude with the Lord Jesus' correct instruction on the matter of personal vengeance and retaliation. So let's begin by looking at the Mosaic principles, and for this we will look at the Lord's words in Matthew 5, verse 38, where he said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Now, here the Lord was quoting in a sort of abbreviated form from essentially three Mosaic passages which were Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25, Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20, and Deuteronomy 19, verses 20 and 21. He said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Old Testament passages that I just gave you actually also go on to mention a life for a life, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And this is known as the Old Testament law of retaliation or the law of proportionate recompense, also known as lex talionis. It was actually, it is probably the oldest um, law in existence. It goes even back to the Code of Hammurabi. Simply put, it means that the punishment was to precisely fit the crime. Tit for tat, we would say. And more of this law is found in Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20, where it says, And if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he hath done, so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. Now, contrary to what many modern critics have suggested, this is far from being a bloody and savage law. They say, oh, you know, an uh, eye for an eye, that's gory, that's bloody, that's savage. But it was really a merciful inclusion of God's civil law which helped to limit vengeance. You see, man, apart from such legal restrictions, as we've seen throughout history, man seeks his own vengeance and does so without fairness. He does so without equity. For example, one member of a primitive tribe involved with another tribe in an ongoing blood feud may simply trespass a physical boundary line. But vengeance against that infraction might easily result in a merciless beating of that one who crossed the boundary line by the other tribe, which in turn may result in a vengeful homicide. And then seeking vengeance for the homicide, the other tribe might burn down the entire village of their enemies. So it was actually mercy on God's part to um, limit the uh, vengeance that man would naturally take upon himself. Furthermore, the law of proportionate recompense was to be carried out by the judges of Israel. And we see this in Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 to 21. Individuals were not permitted to settle their own disputes. Only the courts of Israel were permitted to do so. In addition... It was not always literally, for example, tooth for tooth, it was not always literally carried out by the Jewish legal system because it rightly saw that in some situations it would result not in justice but in injustice. For example, a good tooth from a young man might be taken in payment for a rotten loose tooth that uh, would have fallen out soon anyway from an old man. And that wouldn't certainly be justice. So the eye-for-eye eye legislation was frequently used as a, a formula, a formula for equal compensation for loss. A man who victimized another man may not have had to forfeit his tooth or his hand or his eye or his foot, literally, but he was required by Israel's judges to compensate the one he injured with something appropriate in order to balance his loss. And that may be money, it may be a, a sheep or an ox or you know some other possession of his, etc. 
Thus, they assessed damages, just like our court system does today. Actually, the Mishnah contains an entire section, which is called Baba Kama, to declare the proper payment for all kinds of various damages, all kinds of situations which might arise and probably did arise. And so it spells out all the assessments that would be made, what would have to be uh, repaid for this kind of damage, etc. However, one thing I want to make clear is that the Jews did practice capital punishment. They might not always have literally taken all the other things, an eye for an eye, a hand for a hand, but they did practice capital punishment. In other words, the law of retaliation was taken literally in cases of premeditated murder. A life was required for a life. And again, I reiterate that this was not a bloody and vengeful system of justice, as critics say, but it was very fair and very just because it was God-given, and God is the the creator of justice it also worked and we're going to look at this we're it also worked to accomplish three purposes this law this law of retaliation prevented further crime it prevented excessive punishment and it prevented personal vengeance you know when a person knows that he will forfeit his own life for a life that he has taken and he will forfeit it almost immediately not after 10 years or 20 years in jail and a hundred civil attempts to get him off death row and after millions of tax dollars he will suffer it immediately it is amazing how quickly the murder rate will drop likewise when people know that whatever evil things they do to another person will be immediately and effectively compensated by the means of an equal loss to themselves they may hesitate to commit premeditated crimes and acts of injustice and that was why under the law of god in the old testament punishment for crime was to be executed publicly this would curtail more crime you see those watching would understand the seriousness of committing a crime. It says in Deuteronomy 19.20, and those which remain, which means those who witness the punishment being carried out, you have to see that in the context, but it says they shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. End of quote. You see, the God of grace is also the God of law. The law was actually a demonstration of his grace because it helped to prevent further crime and also excessive punishment it uh, served to regulate the irresponsible passions of men to seek personal vengeance and we see the natural inclination of what man would be apart from the law in such a character as Lamech in the Old Testament Lamech was a wicked man for one thing he uh, had two wives which he had no business having he was a bigamist but then he boasted to his wives of how he had murdered men who had merely bruised him. And he bragged that he would, he would seek vengeance seventy-fold and seven times. Uh, so God's law was to prevent further crime and to prevent excessive punishment, as in a, an example um, such as Lamech. The, the main intent of the, of the law of retaliation was to control excesses like Lamech. It was to control anger and violence and the natural desire of mankind for revenge, which even those who know God 
are guilty of. If any injury or insult is done to us, you know, what is our immediate natural instinct? It's to strike back and often strike back even harder than we were hit. Uh, sometimes that happens with my husband and I. Sometimes he'll just kind of tap me and, and it'll hurt. You know, he doesn't mean to hurt me, but it, it hurts. And then I'll hit him, I'll hit him even harder. That's wrong. That's, but that's my natural inclination is just whoom, automatically strike back. Uh, you may have had it up to here with your husband. Perhaps he just throws his laundry down everywhere. And you finally say, well, I'll, I'll get back. I'm going to make a worse mess out of this. Uh, I'll make a worse mess out of this place than he could ever imagine. And so you don't pick up his laundry for three weeks. It doesn't bother him. You know, he's probably walking over it. <laughs> and you're the one that eventually has to pay because you finally can't stand it anymore. And you pick it up and take it to the washing machine and have all kinds of laundry to do. But you you might do that in in a retaliation to get back at him. Or maybe you go out to his work shed and make havoc of his work shed, his workshop. Say, I'll see how he likes it. And we see this, of course, especially in little children. They evidence this ugly result of the fall of man and original sin. This uh, this natural inclination to get back. Well, he broke my toy. I'm going to break his toy. And then I'm going to break an extra toy even. So the, the retaliation law of God worked as a deterrent to to the victim. It was effective in controlling personal excesses of vengeance and retaliation. In ancient times, men would kill for even minor offenses, as we saw in the case of Lamech. And as we discussed also with our primitive tribal feud situation, sometimes entire villages would be massacred for the crime of just one person. The sons of Jacob were guilty of committing just such a sin because they slaughtered all the males of that ancient city of Shechem simply because one man, the prince of that city, had raped their sister Dinah. And uh, he even wanted to marry her and make it right. But nonetheless, they took extreme vengeance on that city. It was a sin. That was terrible and it was wrong. God's law, you see, was merciful compared to the laws men made on their own. A third purpose for the civil law of retaliation ties in with the one regarding excessive punishment in that it took the choice of punishment away from the victim or his uh, relatives. The judges of the land were responsible for maintaining law and order among the people, not the individual or, or a victim's family. God, who of course knows human nature better than anyone, knows the tendency of man to take matters into his own hands and to do anything he deems right in his own eyes, especially when it comes to taking revenge on the one who has wronged him. And by the way, the victim or his family did not have to press charges, so to speak, except in the case of murder. Numbers 35:31 makes it mandatory for a murderer to also lose his life. But in any other situation... If the one victimized desired to demonstrate mercy, he could. The scripture in both the Old and the New Testaments is consistent with regard to this matter of vengeance. In a personal matter, not being something a godly individual should do. Proverbs 24:29, that's the Old Testament, says, says this. It says, say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. 
end of quote. You see, that's written to believers, supposed to be believers, and they're, and they're not to do unto others as they have done unto them, as far as evil is concerned and vengeance is concerned. They have a right to eye for eye, but they, the moral law would say they don't, they shouldn't, if they know God. And Paul wrote similarly, the same thing to, to believers in Romans twelve nineteen, where he said, Dearly beloved, now of course that speaks of believers, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. You see, so even though the civil law said that it was a, a person's right to demand compensation for loss of a, a tooth or a hand or a foot or whatever, morally, they did not have to. And really, morally, they should not seek revenge. They should leave that up to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to him. He will be the one to repay. So that's the actual Old Testament legislation. Now let's see uh, what the Pharisees had to say about it by the time of Christ and uh, the Pharisaic perversions of this law. The problem was that the scribes and the Pharisees, by the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, they had distorted and twisted the law of recompense so much that it now um, actually transferred to their own private lives a law that was intended for public justice. They, um, they used it to fit their own corrupt natures. Their main error, their main mistake, their main distortion, I should say, which have been passed down through rabbinical traditions over the many, many ensuing years, was that they tended to ignore the fact that the law was for Israel's judges to administer. And they made it a matter of their own personal application. They took the law into their own hands. As I said, they transferred to their own private lives a law that was intended for public justice for the court system. Rather than seeing God's law as being a limit on punishment and a means to hinder personal vengeance, they used it in their typically legalistic way as a license for personal vengeance. They, they saw it as, you know, oh, well, I can demand tit for tat. I, they've hurt me. I will hurt them. That's my right. That's what I'm going to do. And they would take it in their own hands and do it. So, in other words, that which God designed to prevent personal revenge was being used by these supposed spiritual leaders to promote personal revenge. Instead of using it to prevent, they were using it to promote vengeance. Furthermore, they were carrying matters out themselves and they were teaching others to do so by their example, rather than leaving judgment up to the appointed judges and courts. The hatefully revengeful hearts of these religious rulers were most openly exposed, I would say, by their treatment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he had aimed a blow, a serious blow, at their lucrative and corrupt temple business, when he cleansed it early in his ministry and exposed it for what it was and what they were. They had made his father's house into a den of thieves. They were thieves. And because he repeatedly attacked their pride, those two things, their prophets and their pride, because of that, they were obsessed. With, for the rest of his earthly ministry, they were obsessed with seeking vengeance on him. 
until, of course, they succeeded in having him crucified, which really fit right into his redemptive plan anyway. But their reason for crucifying him was very, very sinful. They wanted vengeance. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the Pharisaic perversion of this law. Let's look now at Christ's perspective on the matter in Matthew verses 5, 39 to 42. Let's read those verses. He says, uh, after saying, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the Lord went on and he said, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Or two. Verse 42, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. All right, in these verses, the Lord was rebuking the rabbinic teaching of his day regarding the use of the public law for private use, the law of retaliation. He was correcting the Pharisaic practice of taking that law into their own hands in the matter of personal vengeance. He was really reiterating the true teaching here of the Old Testament. He wasn't making up something new. He uh, didn't come to destroy the law. He came to, um, to fulfill it. And here he's really explaining the true teaching of the Mosaic legislation because although the rule an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth was a provision of the law it was not part of the moral law it was a civil statute and there is a difference the, the moral aspect regarding personal vengeance had always been to not recompense evil for evil we just mentioned that shortly before from Proverbs twenty four twenty nine, where it says say not I will do to him so, as he has done to me there are other verses which support this. Uh, it says, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth. Proverbs um, 20, 22, Proverbs 25, 21, etc. All support the moral aspect regarding personal vengeance, which is, don't do it. If you have been harmed or insulted in a personal way, you do not need to recompense evil for evil, and you really shouldn't. Um, and that that's the Old Testament it's also supported in the New Testament, which we'll look at in, in a little bit. In fact, here's one place in the New Testament where Jesus is speaking in Matthew 5. He actually is forbidding retaliation altogether in the matter of personal relationships. Now, remember that his words here are spoken to kingdom citizens and regarding personal insults, personal uh, re retaliation. And relationships. His words have nothing whatsoever to do with governments and armies and police forces and other authorities of justice because those different institutions must resist evil because they deal with un unregenerate man and unregenerate nations. So here, just remember as we look at these verses that he, Jesus is speaking to believers who alone have the power to not resist evil when they want to strike back. So he's speaking to believers, and he is speaking about personal insults, not a matter of, a matter of defending their own uh, life 
If it comes to danger, Jesus isn't talking about that. He is talking about personal insults, and we'll see that as we go through this. When he said, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil, in verse 39, he was saying, in effect, the same thing that Paul would be inspired to write to the church at Rome when Paul wrote, Recompense no man evil for evil. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. The message of Jesus, which is repeated by Paul, is this. Essentially, do not pay back evil for evil. Resist that natural temptation to get your pound of flesh. Resist the temptation to get your revenge, to get even. Don't demand, even though it's your right, don't demand that you have to have an eye for an eye, you know, or a tooth for a tooth. Don't say, well, she never calls me. I'm not going to call her. Or he never remembers to, to thank me. I'm certainly not going to thank him. Or don't say, uh, well, they cheated us. We, we need to sue them. Don't do that. As a believer, you have the power of God, the Holy Spirit living in you, and you should be able to do that. You should be able to follow the Lord's example. This is what he set as an example for us. Now, if we think back to the setting in which Jesus preached this sermon, we can again see how critical it was that he speak on this particular subject. The Jewish people were constantly suffering from irritation and persecution due to the detachments of Roman troops stationed at various points throughout both Judea and Galilee. The presence of these troops reminded the people of their degradation as a nation. It was very humiliating for them. They resented Rome's presence. They resented Rome's heavy taxes against them and Rome's false gods and Rome's blasphemous worship of, of Caesar and Rome's laws and regulations and rules that were imposed upon them. So collisions between the Jewish people and the soldier, Roman soldiers were, were frequent. Now, especially, remember where Jesus is speaking the Sermon on the Mount, especially among the rough, tough, bold Galileans, you can just imagine a whole lot of Peters, especially among the Galileans was this spirit of insurrection against Rome felt. Capernaum, which was quite near to where Jesus was speaking the sermon, was the seat of a Roman garrison. And perhaps even as the people looked out across the openness there as Jesus spoke, they could even see the Roman garrison from where they stood or sat. The, the people of Galilee were eagerly looking to Jesus to be the one who would humble the great pride of Rome by leading Israel in a victorious removal of her from the land. Of course, the Lord himself had seen this spirit of, of revenge and, and this desire for vengeance stamped upon the faces of, of Israel since he was born. He knew all about the bitterness in their hearts toward their oppressors. And so, although in great contrast to what they expected of him, he opened his mouth and he said, Resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, because the Lord Jesus said, Resist not evil, many people have wrongly concluded that the Christian is never 
under any circumstances to resist evil. Therefore, this scripture has often been used to justify pacifism. Pacifism is the belief that all disputes should be settled peacefully and that war or violence should never be a means of resolving disputes and lawlessness. For example, no military or criminal courts or police and so forth. Many so-called conscientious objectors have actually used the Lord's words of Matthew 5.39 to evade military service. Still others have seen it as a command even against spanking a child, believe it or not. Now there are various different degrees of pacifism. Some pacifists believe that force is necessary for the police and for the courts, but not for killing and uh, war, and they are against the military and serving in the military. However, if the Lord's words, resist not evil, are a prohibition against the use of all force against evil, then he not only contradicted his own example by resisting Satan in the wilderness, who is evil personified, and by throughout his ministry um, casting out demons and cleansing the temple of the evil merchants and money changers on, on two different occasions and saying to the evil hypocritical spiritual leaders that they were a generation of vipers and whited sepulchers and in other situations as well. So he not only would have contradicted his own example of resisting evil, but he also would have contradicted other passages of God's word which he would never have done. The Apostle Paul um, resisted evil uh, in several occasions. Uh, James, the Lord's half-brother, said, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Peter said that we must steadfastly resist the devil who walks about as a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. So he would not have contradicted other passages of God's word. Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, teaches us that government is a divinely appointed institution that has the power to punish lawbreakers. It says, quote, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. In other words, every government that exists is only there because God has allowed it to be there. Paul says the powers that be are God, are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So we know that Jesus was not saying that we are never to resist evil. What the pacifists who use Matthew 5.39 to support their view have failed to understand is that Jesus was speaking to kingdom citizens, not to unregenerate man. Of course, a world of unsaved man absolutely needs those forces that will resist evil. Otherwise, there'd be total anarchy. There'd be a world full of Lamechs going around just seeking vengeance on everybody, and nobody would resist, and they would just have their way. It would be terrible. And uh, they also failed to understand that Jesus was only speaking with regard to personal relationships. He was speaking of the reaction a Christian should have to the insults and injuries that are done by others to him personally. And his statement has absolutely nothing to do with raising children without spanking them, as some have claimed. 
which also, by the way, contradicts the Bible because the Bible says to spare the rod is to spoil the child, Proverbs 13, 24. Neither do his words have anything to do with governments protecting their citizens with a trained military ready to take up arms in war. You know, Mr. Le- or I should say Count Leo Tolstoy and his great Russian novel, War and Peace, was actually built, the thesis for that book was built on his understanding, his wrong understanding of the Lord's words here that we just mentioned, resist not evil in Matthew 539a. His thesis is that the elimination of all military and police forces and all other forms of authority would bring about a worldwide utopia. I just can't imagine how the man was that naive. But he argued that Christ's way, the way of Christ, is to not resist evil in any way. And he said that this was absolute and without any conditions whatsoever. So, according to a man like Count Tolstoy, a true pacifist, now of course I told you there are many forms of pacifism, this is the the most extreme, the extremist would say that a person could not even strike out at someone about to murder or kidnap his own child. And he would say, of course, that neither should any government or people use force to stop terrorism, for example, in our day. And we know that that just is not consistent with, uh, with the scripture or with human nature. Well, Jesus went on to clarify what he meant and that his words were indeed with regard to personal matters and for kingdom citizens by then providing four one-sentence illustrations of what it means to resist not evil. The whole thrust of his words here in uh, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42, was to teach believers in him to die to self to the degree that when insulted or injured or taken advantage of personally, we are... uh, able to resist the desire to repay that evil with further evil and vengeance. You see, if we place our rights first and foremost in our lives, then God's righteousness will suffer. We need to rid ourselves, of course, with the Holy Spirit's power and a proper understanding of God's word, we need to rid ourselves of any spirit of retaliation. And in these verses, the Lord tells us in practical ways how this may be done. First of all, he tells us not to retaliate even though our dignity is smited. And that's the example we see when he contrasts his teaching on God's law regarding um, retaliation to that of the Pharisees' teaching. He said, But I say unto you that whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Mr. Kent Hughes, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, states the following about this verse. He says, quote, What is Jesus describing here? Contrary to what we might think, he is not describing a physical attack, but rather a very traditional calculated insult. Notice, Mr. Hughes tells us, notice that Jesus specifically mentions the right cheek, which tells us that he is describing a backhanded slap. Since most people are right-handed, this is surely what Jesus had in mind. You see, let me stop the quote a minute. If I was going to slap someone, I am right-handed. And if I went to slap them, I would go 
and hit their their left cheek with my palm. That would be the normal slap. But this says if someone smites you on your right cheek, and because most people are right-handed, the only way to slap someone on their right cheek would be a backhanded slap, unless you twist your arm around, which would be totally abnormal to do, to hit somebody with your palm on their right cheek. But it is speaking here of a backhanded slap. And according to, well, let me go back to to Mr. Hughes and read what he says. He says, according to rabbinic law, to hit someone with the back of the hand was twice as insulting as hitting him with the flat of the hand. The back of the hand meant calculated contempt. It meant you were scorned as inconsequential, a nothing. It was the slap given to those who were considered heretics. End of quote. So isn't that interesting? This was not a slap that would necessarily hurt that much, as much as it would be an indignation slap, saying that you're basically nothing. I read somewhere in one of the commentaries that said a slave would rather take a, a whipping than to be backhandedly slapped like this because it was such a a um, a scorning. And um, so we know here that the Lord is really talking about those who would be mocked and scorned for their Christianity. This is, is teaching regarding personal insult here, and Christ is concerned with the manner in which his own people would react to this kind of scorning, this kind of backhanded slap on their right cheek. So his teaching is that we are not to retaliate either physically, verbally, or with bitterness. Now, you know, you can you can resist retaliating physically on someone, but you may keep a hatred or a bitterness in your heart about them for years or forever. It doesn't mean that you're not retaliating. You might not do anything physically, but you might say, well, I hate him. I'll never speak to him again. So Jesus is saying not only are we not to retaliate physically or, or verbally, but either in, in our heart as well. It includes both the heart and the hands. So we're not to do this when our own personal dignity is smited or assaulted. His desire is to produce in us a spirit that does not seek retaliation. He wants us to achieve a level of spiritual maturity where we can handle attacks to our self-esteem, to our ego, to our pride, without striking or without even wanting to strike back. He, he asks that we yield to the Spirit's power within us so that we are willing to give up our personal right to appeal to the law of proportionate retaliation. Now, of course, this does not mean that the Christian has to become a sanctimonious doormat and never, ever protect himself or his family when it comes to matters of self-defense or danger. Of course, that's not at all what he's talking about. The Lord was concerned that a Christian should should stand up for law and that a Christian should stand up for order and justice and for the honor of his country. All these are good, positive things. And neither would he want a Christian to passively turn his cheek in a situation that um, not only would bring danger to himself or his family, but to God, dishonor to God. What he, what he was concerned about was, and what he did refer to, is the reaction of the Christian to attacks to his own pride and his own dignity, his own self-esteem. And this difference between danger and dishonor to God 
and just self-dignity. This difference is what is demonstrated perfectly in the Lord's own life. He resisted evil when it was directed against others, and especially when it was directed against God. However, he never sought for personal revenge when evil was directed at himself. When the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin cheated him of his right to a fair trial, and when the soldiers abused him without cause, he did not retaliate in either words or actions. It says of him in 1 Peter 2.23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. I think about this cheek business. You know, they slapped the Lord, and I am sure they gave him many backhanded, slapping, uh, slanderous, insulting, backhanded slaps on his face. They also pulled his beard out from his cheeks. So he certainly knows what he's talking about here when it comes to turning the other cheek. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, quote, I wonder whether we have ever realized the extent to which the misery and the unhappiness and the failure and the trouble of our lives is due to one thing only, namely self. He says, go back across last week. Consider in your mind and recall to your conscience the moments or the periods of unhappiness and strain, your irritability, your bad temper, the things you have said and done of which you are now ashamed, the things that have really disturbed you and put you off your balance. Look at them one by one, and it will be surprising to discover how almost every one of them will come back to this question of self, this self-sensitivity, this watching of self. There is no question about it. Self is the main cause of unhappiness in life. The whole trouble is self-assertion. It always means uh, that I put myself on the throne instead of God, and therefore it is always something that separates me from Him. A person who is in real communication with God is happy. It does not matter whether he is in a dungeon or whether he has his feet fast in the stocks or whether he is burning at the stake. He is still happy if he is in communion with God. Any desire to glorify self or safeguard the interests of self is of necessity a sin because I am looking at myself instead of looking at God and seeking his honor and glory. Holiness eventually means this. And I think this is a wonderful definition of holiness. He says, holiness eventually means this, deliverance from this self-centered life. Holiness, in other words, must not be thought of primarily in terms of actions, but in terms of an attitude toward self. Very, very true and a very good quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. The life to which we are called as Christians is a life which is Christ-like. It says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus did not consider himself. He did not hold on to who he was or to his rights. And if anybody had rights, it was him because he was, he was God. He humbled himself even though he was equal with God. He, he, if anyone had rights he could claim, it would be Jesus. 
but he denied himself even even though he was God even though he is the creator of all that exists he lived a totally selfless life on earth he didn't even speak of himself but of his father and he deliberately made himself dependent on his father he came to do his father's will he gave his life totally selflessly for for us in obedience to the father's will so following his example then we we willingly are to give up our rights we certainly have less rights than he had and even if we are insulted we do not retaliate if we are smitten if we are sued or if we are forced to do things against our our will we swallow our pride we die to self and we follow the Lord's example of putting the needs and the salvation of others ahead of any rights that we may think we are entitled to. He's, God says he will take care of judging righteous, righteously. If, if any vengeance is needful, God will do it. So you see, if we attempt to take vengeance into our own hands, then we are attempting to steal that which God says belongs to him. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's not our business to take vengeance on anyone. All right, then he also goes on in verse 40 and tells us in a practical way to not retaliate even though our security is sued. Let's look at that verse. He says, And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Now, the coat in this verse referred to the tunic type of shirt worn by Jewish men underneath an outer garment, which was called the cloak. While most men had at least two shirts, very few owned more than one cloak. The outer garment, or the cloak, was in fact oftentimes used as a blanket at night. It was an item of security because it protected a man from the natural elements, such as as the cold and rain. They didn't have umbrellas and raincoats, so they used their outer garment to protect them. Since this garment was such a, a very basic item of security and protection for a, a, an individual, it was never to be demanded as payment in a lawsuit, although one could sue for the inner shirt, but they were never allowed to demand as payment the outer cloak. And, of course, we know Jesus also gave this. What did they do with his outer garment, his cloak? Yes, they cast lots for it. When he was hanging on the cross, they took it and cast lots for it. That was the Roman soldiers, of course. Now, according to Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27, if the outer garment, the cloak, was borrowed, this shows you how important it was to them in those days, if it was borrowed, it had to be brought back to its owner before, quote, the sun goeth down, for that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? End of quote. So you see the importance they could, if, if I borrowed your cloak, I had to have it back to you before nightfall because that was how important it was to you. You, you couldn't sleep without it, if, especially if you were outside. Sadly, what we find happened is that these merciful provisions of the Mosaic law were little regarded in Israel at the time of Christ. So people were suing other people for their cloaks and not just their coats. 
The Lord was teaching in Matthew 5.40 that the attitude a kingdom citizen should display to the world is the attitude which willingly surrenders even his outer garment of security when only sued for his shirt. He'll willingly give up his, his outer garment. He'll willingly give up his security if that's what it takes. And this is what the Apostle Paul reinforces when he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? The level of witness and testimony that we present to the world should be more important to us than the loss of any personal prestige or possession. Spurgeon wrote, he said, quote, Better lose a suit of cloth than be drawn into a suit of law. End of quote. If we behave with contention and with vengeance to those who would sue us, then we really present nothing different to the world than what it's accustomed to, to seeing and receiving. People would say, well, why become a Christian? That fellow is no better than I am. When our wants are first and foremost, our witness is forfeited. When we put our rights first, God's righteousness suffers. All right, and then the Lord in verse 41 goes on to tell us that we should not retaliate even though our freedom is sacrificed. So we've seen that we should not retaliate if our dignity is smited, our security is sued, and now we're talking about even if our freedom is sacrificed. Let's look at verse 41. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. One particular Roman law that the Jews particularly hated and which greatly embittered them even more than they already were embittered against their Roman oppressors was that any Roman soldier could compel a citizen of any conquered country, which of course would include Israel, to carry his heavy pack for the distance of about one mile. Now, a Roman mile was slightly shorter than our contemporary mile. And besides his other living supplies, a Roman soldier's pack would include his weapon, his weapon of warfare, or weapons, plural. It was one thing for the Jews to lose the freedom to rule their own rule and reign, you know, over their own country, but to be forced to even carry their hated oppressors' war weapons and be treated like a mule was a real blow to their pride and to their right for personal freedom. It was a great loss of personal freedom for a man at a moment's notice to be called from his home to carry a Roman's pack for him a mile or to be called from the midst of his work, maybe out in the field, to hike a mile out of his way with his enemy's heavy burden or to be knocked, you know, have his house knocked on while he's sleeping at night that somebody knocks on the door and says, get up, you're going to carry my pack for a mile. That was a great loss of freedom. Yet Jesus was saying to the Christian believer... I should say the Christian, to the believer, he was saying, take up that enemy's pack and do so willingly. Show him a cheery face. Demonstrate no contempt over this infringement on your personal freedom. In fact, take that pack even farther than the law requires you to do. Christ wants us to be ruled by the spirit of love in our private dealings not by the rule of the law. We should be so dead to self that we place the soul 
of that of a like a lost Roman soldier. We place the soul of whoever our contemporary foes are above our own rights to freedom. When we can present to even our enemies a real exhibit of Christian contentedness and joy, despite our circumstances, then we have an excellent opportunity of sharing Christ with them. This is what Paul and Silas did with the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.25. They, um, they, they showed such a witness before him that even when the, the gates were open and they could escape from prison, they did not. They stayed there and he was one to the Lord. They didn't take advantage of their own freedom, their right to freedom. They put his soul above their own right. You know, there are always two ways that we can do any task. We can do it grudgingly, unwillingly, miserably. We can wash the dishes, for example, with a, a big scowl on our face and tears in our eyes and pity for ourselves that nobody is helping us and we have to always put our hands in the soapy dishwater at night after night and just be miserable about it. Or we can wash the dishes smiling we can wash the dishes humming a favorite hymn and uh, even maybe all the while praying for somebody that we know. We could wash the dishes just blessing God that we're healthy enough to be washing the dishes and praising him that we have dishes. In difficult trying situations, and I don't say washing the dishes is a difficult trying situation, but in difficult trying situations, we need something so contrary to what the world expects that even a hardened Roman soldier would have to notice that there was something different, that there was joy in spite of our circumstances. For example, when, when uh, the Apostle Paul was in prison and he was singing, that was joy in spite of circumstances. And again, it was such a witness to the others around them. Paul always had that attitude, and I think every Roman soldier that was ever handcuffed to him saw that, and so many of them were one to the Lord because of it. How willing are you to go the second mile with someone in order to witness either silently or verbally of your changed life in the Lord Jesus Christ? How much out of your way will you go to win someone to the Lord? How much of your freedom are you willing to sacrifice so that others might might be brought out of their bondage to sin? Important questions to ask ourselves. In verse 42, the Lord says, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. And here he is telling kingdom citizens to not retaliate or resist evil, even though their possessions may be surrendered. Man's basic human nature is to be very possessive of those things that belong to him. And Christians also tend to have this problem with possessions, although we should realize that all things really belong to God and he has merely given us temporary stewardship over them. And we can't take them with us. The only thing we can take with us or we'll be actually sent ahead and that is spiritual treasures that we lay store up for ourselves in heaven things that will endure but we can't take anything from this world with us physically in Christ's fourth example 
of resisting our natural tendency to retaliate evil with vengeance, he rebuked the wrong spirit of those who put first their own rights to their possessions and therefore would not relinquish them to the one who is in real need. Over in Luke 6, verses 34 and 35, the Lord said, he said, uh, quote, If ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your neighbors, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. Here he was saying, don't give just because you hope to receive back. Because even the non-saved people do that all the time. But he says, give, and don't expect anything in return. Lend, hoping for nothing again in return. We're to have... uh, our right, our, our, the right to our things needs to be surrendered um, and put upon the altar of obedience to the Lord Jesus right along with our rights to dignity and security and freedom if we are to be found pleasing to God when we meet him face to face. Christians are to be known by the world for, for um, the spirit of generosity. We're not to be known as the Scrooges and the misers of the world. And, of course, I have to admit, again, we are to use discernment and and godly wisdom in our giving, or we could be supporting selfishness and idleness in others. We don't give to the man who's begging for money and, you know, knowing he's going to just run out and get himself another bottle of whiskey. We are not to give to every freeloader and panhandler and every televangelist who comes along, but... uh, because we are to have discernment. We are not to give indiscriminately. But yet, when there is a true need, we are to be known as being very generous. It says in 1 John three seventeen and 18, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So, all in all, we are to let go of our legalistic obsession with rights and fairness and getting even and holding on to what we think belongs to us. We are to really have, in in regard to this spirit of vengeance or retaliation or getting our rights, we are to have the spirit of Abraham. Remember, he had every right to choose the land first. He was older than Lot. And he had every right to take the first selection of land to to live in. But he gave up his right to do that and gave it to Lot. And did God take care of that situation? Did God bless Abraham? Yes, he did. We should have the spirit of Joseph, who even though very much wronged by his own brothers, was willing and anxious to forgive them and to love them. And we should have the spirit of David, who didn't seek vengeance on Saul, even though King Saul had tried to kill him on a number of occasions when David had the opportunity to seek revenge. He did not do so. And of Stephen, we're to have the spirit of Stephen, who even as he was being stoned to death, had a word of prayer for those who were murdering him. He did not seek vengeance. He didn't say, God's going to strike you. You're going to get yours, and I can't wait until you do. 
We should deal with the sins and the insults against us personally, always, always like these men, in Christ-like ways, willing to be hurt, willing to be vulnerable, willing to be taken advantage of, or even willing to be overextended so that others might see Jesus in us. The Lord Jesus gave the message of hope to a dying thief who had just been mocking him. And remember his prayer of forgiveness for his very murderers. So let's not cling to that which we think is fair. Because uh, we need to remember we should be glad that Jesus is not fair with us. Or we would all get what is truly coming to us. And that isn't good at all. By the way, apart from the Lord Jesus, the entire Sermon on the Mount is impossible. Apart from his surpassing righteousness, we would be just like the scribes and Pharisees, trying by our own self-righteous efforts to get to heaven our way, and every single one of us would fail. Let's pray. Father, as Paul wrote, we do not use our rights, but we endure all things that we may not cause any hindrance to the gospel of Christ. I pray that is true in our lives. Father, when our rights are first, we know your righteousness suffers, and we do not want that. Father, we do thank you so much for your word and for the truths it teaches to us. Help us not to have a spirit of vengeance. Thank you for saving grace. Thank you, Father, for sustaining grace that we need every day and every hour. Thank you for your all-sufficient grace. And thank you, Father, for serving grace. Thank you that there are so many wonderful servants of yours in this group assembled before me. We love you now. I ask that you would protect each person here. Keep them from the evil one. Help us to resist the devil. But when it comes to personal insults and injuries with regard to our Christian witness, May we resist the temptation to do evil. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us and giving up all of your rights so that we might have eternity with you. We pray in your blessed, precious name. Amen.